Did we figure out last week what the, the buzz was? No, we didn't. Oh, Sam, look at that. All right, so we're going to be jumping into Daniel chapter 11. Uh, we got th- three more sermons, counting this one, uh, on the book of Daniel. And uh, I was trying to see if I could fit all this chapter into one sermon, and I just didn't see that as a possibility. Now, I want to I want to make uh, sort of a caveat here. This is going to be more of a history, you know, like because we're looking at we're looking at prophecy that's from Daniel's perspective, prophecy about the future. He hasn't seen these things happen. And then all of chapter 11, he's talking about things that are going to occur, how the Persian Empire is going to keep evolving, how the Greeks are going to come in. And he's writing this hundreds of years before these things happen. So this is prophecy from his perspective but from our perspective you know 2500 years removed from from Daniel uh, it's a lot of history and so preparing this sermon has been a lot of reading this week and trying to figure out how I can best package this uh, to get the information out there but also to try to think through okay how, how does this speak to us today and so the title that I've given today's sermon is the war of empires and the perseverance of God's people Um, And we're going to be dwelling on the first 13 verses. I don't think we will ever fully appreciate um, until eternity the consequences of spiritual realities on our politics, on our history. There are certainly enough atrocities. If you think throughout uh, human history of what people have achieved to do and what they've done, uh, there are certain things where we can with full confidence say there are certain things that humanity has done that's just demonic in nature. It just seems like you have to be at a weird place to even think about the ideas that some people throughout history have put into action. But Daniel, he shares with us a vision now that are things to come from his perspective and are from, from our perspective. It's fulfilled history, uh, fulfilled prophecy, I mean, but, so it's history. And in the text you see the, in this chapter, you, you see the central theme is that what's going to happen with God's people. And I think as, as we study scripture, I think this is good to have in mind. As you study the Bible, um, some people want to say it's a, you know, look at it like a book on philosophy, book on science, book on, you know, whatever. It's ultimately a book about God's people, God's promises being fulfilled throughout history. And so as we look at this chapter, you see all these empires, you see these armies, these great people in history coming and going, and there is this tiny nation, Israel. And it's not with big conquests. It doesn't have empire. It doesn't have an empire that's spreading all over the world. It's just there in the midst of the chaos. And so it's sort of like hearing a story about a nuclear disaster and everything is killed except for the cockroach. <laughs> that's the, sort of the theme that the cockroach is supposed to be. Cockroaches and Twinkies are supposed to survive every, everything, right? Uh, And that's sort of how a lot of people from a humanistic perspective would look at this. Like, okay, he's got all these big characters in history, but somehow the story, in the middle of the story, there's this tiny nation, Israel, and God's eye on that nation. Now, from our perspective, we see why. Because through them, there came the scriptures. Through them, there came the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And so you see why. It's of central concern in this chapter what happens to the people of Israel. 
So we break today's sermon down into uh, four parts. I'm, I'm trying to think, did I put this in here? Yeah, so those are the four parts we're going to be dwelling on. Uh, the verses there in the beginning. So it's gonna, we're going to talk about the Persian Empire from 539 to 331 B.C. We're going to talk about the Greek conqueror from 331 to 323 B.C. The South versus the North and the North versus the South. And so that's a lot of kind of history, but I hope to give you the information as well as try to think through uh, how this can be helpful for us today. Um, Let's start with the first two verses. And as for me, he says, let me put the verses up there. Uh, And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So that's the history that he gives to the Persian Empire. Two verses. I think we can fairly easily conclude this is not an exhaustive list of what happens in Persian Empire. He talks about Uh, A king right now, when he's speaking, that Cyrus the Great is in power. Uh, When he dies, there are going to be three more kings that are just going to be pretty normal. And then there's going to be a fourth king. And he's going to be richer than all of the three before him. But one of the key issues there, he's going to go up against the Greeks. Um, And so when you look through history and you look through the Persian kings who comes after Cyrus the Great, you see... Uh, His son, Cambyses II, he rises to power at 530 to 522. And then after him, there's this twist in the story. Uh, His brother, Bardia, who is also the son of Cyrus the Great, he rises to power. But history is sort of uncertain if it's really Bardia. So this guy, he's reigning for seven months, and eventually he gets killed because people think he's pretending to be the son of Cyrus the Great and isn't really the guy, he's just a swindler. And so he rises to power, he reigns for seven months, and is killed. He rises to power in 522, and he's killed in 522. And then you have a king called Darius I, who reigns from 522 to 486. And then we have the king that we probably know the name of. The king is called Xerxes I. Uh, There's been a lot of movies about this, him and the Greeks uh, coming to fight each other. So he is the guy that the verse is talking about. There are going to be three rulers that come after Cyrus the Great. That's Cambyses II, uh, that's Bardia, and that's also Darius I. And then after him, there's going to become a ruler that's far richer than all of them. And one of the main points that Daniel brings up, he is going to go against the Greeks. And what do we see in history? That's exactly what happens. He gets far richer than all of them. And he goes against the Greeks. And uh, he attacks Greece and starts a bad relationship there. 135 years after his rule, there's a guy who was born in Macedonia. His name is Alexander, later called the Great. And there's still this bad relationship between the Greeks and the Persians. And so Alexander the Great, he comes to be king when he's 20 years old. And what does he do? He just goes to conquer the whole world. You know, speeds that was just unheard of up until that time. All in all, Persia had about 10 kings who ruled, 
and Alexander the Great would then come along and conquer them. But the reason why he mentions the four is not, I think, to give an exhaustive list of all of the Persian Empire, but rather to give the connection between what will lead to the destruction of the Persian Empire, what will lead to the next few verses we're going to go into, which is the Greek conqueror. And so we pick up in verses 3 to 4, and Daniel says this, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, let me put the verses up there, and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So here he's talking about Alexander the Great. He comes and he does, he does what he wants. He just kind of goes all over the earth. Sometimes he's moving so fast that when he gets to a city, they haven't had, had uh, time to prepare for his attack. So the only thing left for them to do is just give up, give in, allow him to come and conquer because they couldn't even put up defenses before his army was at their door uh, knocking. And his life is relatively short. He's a king for 12 years and he, he just, and then, then he dies. And it's pretty crazy because you read through the history of Alexander the Great and he does some crazy stuff. I mean, he's in battles all the time, but then you read about his death and it's actually just like, a common illness that kills him. And what I found interesting when I was reading about Daniel, uh, about Alexander the Great, is that he dies in the very palace that Daniel is writing this from. He dies in Babylon, in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, where he is writing about his short life. And then you see in the verse that his kingdom will be divided into four parts, and that's exactly what happens. Uh, the legend goes that he was asked at his deathbed, who is going to inherit the kingdom? And he said, the kingdom will go to the strongest, which created absolute chaos, because everyone wanted to be strongest. And so they started killing each other, and ultimately it settled that the Greek Empire had split into four quadrants. And uh, that's exactly what we see in the verses. Hundreds of years before this happened, Daniel is seeing a vision. He's saying the Greek will come, he's going to rule, he's going to do what he wants, and then quickly he's going to die, and his kingdom is going to be split into four parts and God, this is 100% accurate. Um, and in the following verses, he goes into what the divisions will look like. They won't be friendly towards each other, even though they're all Greeks. Um, they speak the same language. They got a lot of the social, uh, you know, social, uh, what is it called? Interactions, social things. <laughs> thingies, social thingies down. They share that. His kingdom was divided into four um, but then in the following verses, we're going to dwell on five through nine first. They start to think mainly about two parts of the kingdom, the Greek kingdom, that start to fight one another. They're not friendly with one another. And in the following verses, you will see a lot of talk about the south and the north. Um, and the south, if you, if you think, if you want to have an image in your mind uh, about what the south means, it's Egypt. And then the north would be like Asia, uh, Syria, and so on and so forth. So if, when you hear south, think Egypt. When you think north, think uh, Asia Minor or something along those lines. So you have these generals that come after Alexander the Great and they try to fight over their kingdoms. 
And you have one guy, Ptolemy, who, am I saying that right? Does anyone know history in here? Anyone? Because I'm guessing the P is silent. It's not Ptolemy. Uh, so it's Ptolemy, right? <laughs> I think so. Um, Ptolemy, he, he comes and he takes care of the south. He becomes the king of Egypt. And the north, you have a guy called Seleucus. Uh, and he sets up his kingdom, which would later be sort of known as the Seleucid Empire. Um, and they start fighting one another, uh, just like typical, uh, at least at that time, Greeks. They <laughs> just seem to be born and bred for, for fighting. Um, so when we read verses 5 through 9 right now, let's, let's keep that in mind. South being Egypt, north being Syria, Asia. Then the one king of the south shall be strong. But one of his princes shall be stronger than he and, he, and shall rule. And his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And we're like, okay, what is, <laughs> how do I place myself in this scripture, right? Uh, there's, been, there's been this misconception that just place yourself in these scriptures and then you'll understand. That's not necessarily the case. Here he's talking about the guy in the south and ascending. As, anyways, and so it happens that for a few decades, the Greeks, they kill each other. They attack each other. And then after some years, like we see in verse 6, there was a different king in the south who built the world's greatest library. Anyone know what library that was? Famously burnt with a lot of knowledge of human history in it. Alexandria. Alexandrian library, he built that. Uh, that was built by the Ptolemies. And then um, uh, his name was Ptolemy uh, Philadelphus, who was the son of the first Ptolemy, uh, Ptolemy Lagus. And there was a different king in the north as well, Antiochus Theos. And there's a lot of Antiochus, uh, Antiochus, whatever you want to call their names. There's a, there's a lot of Ptolemies, there's a lot of Antiochus. In, in the next few weeks, but they all have different last names. And there was a different king in the north as well. His name was Antiochus. He was the third king of Syria. They were tired of killing each other. They were tired of fighting with one another. Uh, they wanted peace. So Ptolemy, he sends his daughter, Bernice. That's just Bernice. I don't know. I, I just found that funny for some reason. Bernice up north to give to her, uh, her in marriage to Antiochus. And they did. So he gives up his daughter, says, go up north, marry this guy, and, and we can be peaceful from now on. We can stop killing each other. But then Ptolemy dies, her father. And what Antiochus does is he you know, throws her away. He's like, I don't want to be married to you anymore. Marries again his ex-wife before you know, he had her. And then her brother hears about this, who's now in power. He hears that he's discarded his, his uh, sister. He's going to go up there for a rescue mission. But what he finds when he gets up there is that she's been killed and her son has been killed as well. And so what he's been doing, he's been going up to rescue his sister and he's gathered a lot of forces behind him to try to join him in this rescue mission. And that turns into, when they find out that she's dead, it turns into a mission of revenge. He just wants to 
get to the person who did this. And again, there starts this war, this alliance that we see here, that's this attempt to, to stop and, and be peaceful. It, it fails, uh, like we see in the text here today. It doesn't bring about lasting, uh, lasting unity. And we see in, in the following verses what happens in 7 to 9. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. This is her brother. He's coming up. He's trying to rescue her, but then he deals with her, uh, with them. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king in the south, but shall return to his own land. So Bernice is rejected. Her brother Ptolemy uh, Euarchites, I think it's the way you say this, tries to come for her rescue, but he finds that she's dead. She goes and attacks this king, wants revenge. Um, and Jerome and Justin, uh, they relate this information that he took over Syria and Cilicia and most of Asia. He took over almost all of his kingdom for revenge for his sister. And what, what's interesting, because, again, remember, this Daniel is not writing this as something he knows what has happened. This is a prophecy about what will happen. And he's very specific about their gods will be brought back to Egypt, the precious vessels, and so on and so forth. And then you read historians like Jerome and Justin, who talk about him taking over Syria and Cilicia and almost all of Asia, <laughs> And they plundered it, and they took a lot with them. They took 2,500 images and idols back with them to Egypt. And when it comes to their gold and their precious vessels, they took 40,000 talents of silver and precious vessels with them to Egypt as well. And Daniel has not experienced this. He, he hasn't seen this. He's not reading a history book. This is before any of this is happening. He's laying out these detailed informations, you know, and we're like... And we got to read the history and, you know, get to meet Bernice and see how she fits into the image, right? Ptolemy, eventually he outlived the king by, by four years, and all of which you see there in, in, in verse 8. And the last verses I want to jump into before we dwell a little bit on this and what it can, why it can be beneficial to us. Um, his sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflowing and passing through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south moved with rage shall come out and fight against the king of the north and he shall raise a great multitude but it shall be giving, given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away his heart shall be exalted and he shall cast down tens of thousands thousands but he shall not prevail for the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies so for about 70 years uh, the south is dominant the north is just kind of surviving but then it decides i'm not just going to survive we're not going to survive we're going to go attack and we're going to take back our land and we're going to take their land and this happens under the king uh, Ptolemy Philippator. I'm trying to give like, I'm trying to figure out, Philippator? Is that how you would say it in English? Philippator? Is that <laughs> I'm trying to like put these Greek 
names into English, and I don't know quite how to do that. They're closer to Icelandic. He was enraged by Antiochus, and the war continues. And this is sort of the theme of human history. The lives of the innocents are dying for the rage of kings and power figures in history. Like, you don't read about Baal in the army. You don't read about all of what is in line for him. You don't read about his death and his family's suffering. You read about these kings, these great figures, these power players on the world stage having their feelings of rage or their feelings of wanting revenge. And then you just hear a number, like 10,000 foot soldiers died. And you don't know their names. And it's what we see throughout human history. The bloods, uh, you know, the streets, they run with the blood of the innocent because of, uh, because of feelings of rage and contempt and humiliation or revenge by those in power. And even if you survived, even if you were in the army and you were not among the 10,000s that died, like I've been thinking a lot about this when it comes to PTSD post-traumatic stress, uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, yeah. It's what, what a lot of people experience now when they go, for instance, in the military and they're in the war zone and they kind of find themselves, they're always stressful about an explosion going off and they come back and they just have nightmares and they, you know, start sweating. They can't keep a, a normal job or focus throughout the day. And I, I'm reading these histories and imagine just the way they fought. Like you had a sword in hand. And a, and a shield. Like you, you didn't stand 200 feet away, kind of depersonalizes the situation and just saw from, a, from afar that that person falls, falls down and dies. You stab them in the stomach and you look them in the eye as the life fades away. You hear the gurgling, you hear the death happen. You, you are on the battlefield with the stink of death all around you. And I just imagine like, what did it do to these people? What did it do to these people? Uh, since we have a couple of Scottish people with us today. Like, I, w I was obsessed with William Wallace when I was a kid. Uh, I, I was obsessed with him. And it was all, like, romanticized in my mind, the heroism and all this type of stuff. But you imagine what the people had to endure and what kind of traumatic disorders happens, even if you do survive the war. Even if you are Bob and you did survive, you, did, you weren't a part of the 10,000, you go back home and you... Half the man you were when you went to war. And it's all this, like you see these great figures of human history, and then you hear a number. Like, yes, because of their decision, 10,000 people died. Because of their decision, yeah, they lost 600 horsemen. And, you're, you know, it's, it turns into statistics. But remember what we were talking about last week. There was a chapter dedicated to how messed up Daniel was by this, by this vision. Like, he experienced human history and the horrors that would unfold all in one sitting. He didn't just experience one horrible situation. He was seeing this happen in front of his eyes. All of human history unfolding all the way to the end of time. And he talked again and again about how he couldn't stand up, how he had nothing left. He didn't want to write this down. He didn't want to talk about this. He had no energy left. And now you kind of start to think about what, he is, what he's actually seeing. What is he actually experiencing? And you can read through you know, the histories of Justin or uh, Poly 
Polybius, uh, Prudhoe, uh, Jerome, and others. And what you see that this prophecy, like you, I think, how many of us have read this and you're just like, okay, there's going to be some woman, there's, yeah, okay, you know, probably happened somewhere. But when you start to read these histories and see just how perfectly they lined up with one another, that's the reason why a, a lot of the time the book of Daniel is attacked for being written after the fact because it's so accurate. That's why we took a whole boring sermon to give a reason for why we can trust the book of Daniel was written before this all happened. Because that's a genuine... You, you, you check out these details and it's not just one... It's like all of these things, the unfolding history, and you see how it all lines up. I can understand why a lot of people would be skeptical of supernatural things, would say, this is definitely written after the fact. But then you see the evidence that it's not. And you see verse 14, for instance, describing the multitude that Antiochus will get along with him. And this is like giant. I mean, I'm sort of surprised by this when I read about wars back in the day. And you, you're talking about 62,000 foot soldiers that he got with him. And the opposite side had 70,000 foot soldiers. He had 600 horsemen. And then I, I, I thought this was mainly in the movies, but apparently he had 102 elephants uh, with him as well. So, I mean, this is a lot of people, a lot of animals, a huge force but those multitudes are, are given into the hand of Ptolemy. And even though he wins, he does not prevail because Antiochus escapes. Um, Ptolemy will eventually die. Not because, of any, not because of this war, but he will eventually die. And uh, then, I, I find this so interesting. <laughs> uh, then his son, age five, becomes king. And Antiochus, he is still alive, and he uses this opportunity. He's like, well, the king is five years old. <laughs> he just wants candy for dinner. Uh, let's, let's try to do something about this. Let's use this opportunity. And so he, again, he starts to gather people with him. He makes an alliance with the king of, of Macedon, and he takes over Egypt eventually. Now, if we stop for a moment, and we just ask ourselves, uh, when it comes to fulfilled prophecy like we see here today. It may feel like a lot of information to learn. Maybe you came in here and you're like, well, I'm going to church, so it's got to be super spiritual. But then you're like talking about these figures in history that have come and gone. Maybe a lot of information to learn, a lot of foreign names that we've never heard before and we probably won't remember how to pronounce after we leave here today. And a lot of dates and years that we probably won't remember either. But can you imagine being a person who is reading the book of Daniel, finding themselves in this situation what the, when they're reading about it? Like they're finding themselves under the fourth ruler that he talked about in Persia. He's greater than all the rest. And you just heard the word, he's taking an army with him and he's going to attack the Greeks. And you're reading the book of Daniel like, or you find yourself, um, you know, <laughs> under, under the lifetime of Alexander the Great, and you hear about him becoming king in Macedonia, 
And now he's attacking the whole earth. It seems like he's just going after everything, trying to power grab everything. And you read about the conquering Greek empire. And you're like, wow. Can you imagine what it's like for those people? Like, because I, I was reading uh, the historian Flavius Josephus, who is a first century historian. He's born, I think, 23 uh, AD. So he's like born during the life of Christ, and he's writing a lot about the first century and what's happened before. And he, for instance, talks about when Alexander the Great came and, and he conquered Jerusalem, that the priests in the temple, they showed him the book of Daniel about the prophecy concerning Alexander the Great. And I was like, that's crazy. You know, that's crazy. Imagine being there at that time. When it's being fulfilled, the priests are like, you're the Greek conqueror, and this was written 300 years ago. This is you. And it says, uh, Flavius Josephus, he says that Alexander the Great, he took a day to himself, thought about these things, and then he came back and he brought a lot of blessings into the temple. He, he wanted, to, wanted to leave them alone because of this. Anyways, like imagine being at the moment. Like to us, it's a lot of information. Like who is Antiochus, blah, blah, blah. You know, and who is Ptolemy, you know, the 17th or whatever. Like who are these people? But imagine being a part of that being living in human history, having the word of God, reading the book of Daniel, and you see the horrors, you see what Ptolemy, you, you see what Xerxes is doing, you see that innocent people are going to die for, for his you know, power-hungry nature, or, but you're like, God, even when Xerxes looks like he's all-powerful, he is not. He is just one player in the story of God. God knew about his coming before his great-great-great-grandparents were alive. He knew this all along. And even though chaos might be all around, he knew this was happening. He is in control. And ultimately, no matter what name Xerxes uses for himself, the king of kings, the lord of lords, that's not true. <laughs> There's one that's always over you. And whoever comes after you, be him greater or lesser, there's going to be the same one over everyone. You may think yourself great. People around you may think yourself great. But ultimately, when we compare ourselves to God, none of us compare to his glory. None of us compare to his rule. No matter how powerful people get. And there's no doubt about it that for us, this may be a lot of facts that are hard to remember, but... He, you know, as the big names of history, they plot and their scheme, and the, the people of God have been largely unnoticed in this verses. Have you, have you noticed that? There's no mention of Israel. They're <laughs> just kind of like this you know, small place somewhere in history while the empires are fighting each other. There's a small Israel in the middle, and we've not heard anything about it. So that's what we're going into next week, because then Israel starts to get involved, and we start to to learn more about the evil Antiochus Epiphanes who will later come and, and persecute the Jews and point all of his hatred and power towards the Jews. And it revolves around how, you know, these military powers will persecute them, but God's people will prevail. But as a Jew reading this text while it is happening in front of you at this time, like if you find yourself in a situation where you're reading and you're seeing the Greek Empire come, and then you keep on reading, and you read about what's going to happen. 
you may say, this is horrible, but man, what's, hap- what's going to happen is going to be even more horrible. And next week, we'll talk about the contemptible person who will specifically point his hatred and madness towards the Jews. But here we are today, even further removed from the, the specific prophecy, and we see it as things that have already passed. But in chapter 12, we realize that one day there will be another generation that will be reading the scriptures and seeing it unfold in front of them. And that's when it goes into prophecy about the last days. One day there will be another generation that reads the prophecy of God and they will find themselves living and knowing who the Antichrist is, how he rules his severe persecution, his hatred for God's people. It may be our generation, but here I'm a bit like skeptical because it seems like every generation in human history since the coming of Christ has said, well, it must be, we must be living in the end times now. It may be 10 generations down the road. But one of these days, there will be a generation that will be reading the scriptures about the prophecy about the future, and they will be living in it. And so as we look back, I think that should cause us to take the prophecy that have not yet been fulfilled more seriously. There's no use in guessing when that end day is going to happen, no matter how smart you think you are. But here's what we see. In in the midst of the big players on the world stage, the empires that come and go, the power grabs and the political plotting and maneuvering, God's plan is the same. God's plan for his people stays the same. He has chosen this nation to bring us the scriptures. He's chosen this nation to bring us a savior that we need. And here we are reading those scriptures. And here we are worshiping that savior, Jesus Christ. And as the great leaders, they come and go. And as the empires, they rise and they fall. These great names become known throughout the world. The one has, who has given the promises, he's still in control. And he knew full well of what was coming. So, dear Christian, here's what's bothered me a lot about the church for the past few decades. is that I feel like a lot of the church has started to rely on politics to save us. On legislation uh, to save us. To rely on politicians for hope. I mean, like, (laughs) it's... I just saw a post, uh, you know, this week on Facebook where it was literally Donald Trump walking in front and Jesus walking behind and saying, they will save America. No, no, no. (laughs) that's literally what I saw. But I'm saying, no politician will save you. No, No political party, no matter how great their ideas are, will heal this broken world. That don't put your trust in these people who, yeah, they may have great ideas every once in a while, but they may also have catastrophic, stupid ideas. Put your trust in the God, creator, and sustainer of this world who knows what's happening, no matter what is the big name on the TV screens right now. He's still in control. We look to no other for salvation and for hope than Jesus Christ. And as politicians do great things or mess up unfathomably, 
we find peace and hope in the one whose plan will not be changed, no matter who comes on the world stage. No matter who is in power or what tactic is deployed, you see here today a lot of kings with a lot of different tactics, but later there would come another king, a very different king, different from all the rest. He didn't need an army of thousands or horses or elephants to conquer. He conquered by bleeding on a cross. And he didn't have the cream of the crop when it came to his followers. He had fishermen and tax collectors. Tax collectors in those days, it wasn't like a fancy desk job. They were hated. Like they were despised. They were seen as traitors. Just to put it into perspective, they were collaborators with the Romans who were occupying the Jews. So they were despised by the community. He didn't have the cream of the crop as his followers. He had fishermen and tax collectors. He didn't have a political sway. In fact, he was killed by people who had a lot of political sway and a lot of earthly power. But eventually their sway would wane and the empire would fade away. But his kingdom has continued to spread since that day. So maybe you're in here and you find yourself concerned with the chaos that we now face. I just want to tell you, chaos has been a part of human history that's as old as that bitten fruit in the garden. That's when chaos started, and only at the end of the age is when chaos ends. What we have to deal with is how we deal with the chaos, who we look to for hope in the chaos. In the chaos, we are ambassadors of this different king and this different kingdom. We are the light in the darkness. We are the salt. And in the brokenness and the chaos, we're called to be light. We're called to be, bring hope. And I think about this, and you think about all these great things that, like Alexander the Great, there's no, no doubt about it, he's probably, you know, the best in, uh, in uh, sort of strategy, war strategy that there was. Like, no one compared to what he did in the amount of time that he did. Man is capable of greatness. But greatness cuts both ways. You can be greatness in doing, you have greatness in doing good. You can have greatness in doing evil. Like, it just depends on what you see as success. A man, like, if you think about an airplane, like, can you think how ridiculous an airplane is? You're going to take a metal tube and you're going to make it fly through the sky, right? Man, as greatness, he made a metal tube fly through the sky. That's awesome. And then another man comes along and he says, I'm going to strap a bomb to this metal tube flying through the sky. And with one drop, I'm going to kill thousands, if not millions. Man is greatness on both sides. That you can be greatness in, in evil things or greatness in doing good. If you choose to build, um, no, sorry, um, mankind can harness the power of the atom to power up cities, and it can also harness that same power to destroy those cities. We can invent drugs that attack diseases, that save lives and alleviate pain, but also drugs that create diseases, take lives, and increase the pain and are the, the reason for the pain. We are capable of much love and a lot of hate. But in the midst of the plots and plans of man, God is in control. He's making his plans come to pass. And if you choose to build your hope on the unstable ground 
of the fleeting and decaying plans of man, that foundation will not stand the storms of life when they come. And I say when they come, not if they come. However, if you build your hope on the ground of God's eternal promises, he has proven himself, like we were singing uh, earlier, o'er and o'er again, over and over again, his word stands true. doesn't matter how powerful you think you are, how powerful politicians or world leaders think they are, his plans have always stood throughout time. In a world that is doing its best to keep up with the Kardashians and checking the latest tweet from Donald Trump, maybe we should just focus on fixing our eyes on someone greater. It's amazing to me, like depression, anxiety, and all this stuff is on the rise with this new technology because we don't know how to handle this stuff. We've never done this before. And so literally, we're the guinea pigs of coming generations as to what a phone will do to a person. Uh, because a few years from now all the great leaders all the celebrities that we read about they're going to be names in the history books mainly being told or taught to 12 year old kids who are just mad over the fact that now they have to remember this extra name for the next test right but God is the same yesterday today and forever He deserves all glory and all honor, all of our attention. And as people, we're drawn to the chaos. Like, maybe we don't admit it, but I think think it's pretty obvious that we're, we're drawn to chaos. You witness a car wreck on the side of the road, and you see people cannot look away. Like, there's no one blocking the traffic, but the traffic is still very slow because everyone wants to drive super slow and just look at the car wreck that just happened. There are magazines and newspapers that revolve around sharing information about the chaos in someone else's life. Look at how much weight they gained. Look at how skinny he is or she is. And like, We are drawn to chaos itself. But we have to remember, instead of focusing on hopelessness, instead of focusing on all these names that sound so great and big at the moment, the one who stands forever and is forever, he deserves our glory all all honor and all of our attention and so today as in every Sunday I want us to just stop In, in all of the news feeds that you can read about all the things happening in this world everything happening outside of these walls just stop and focus on Christ focus on Christ focus on his broken body for you and his blood that was shed for you That's what we want to do every Sunday. Like one guy, I think it was Luther, who said, there's a guy who came up to him and he said, you brought the same sermon for 20 Sundays in a row. You just talked about the gospel. And he said, why do you do it? Because you forgot it the 19th time. (laughs) We're going to be talking about the gospel because we keep forgetting it. We keep letting our eyes stray. That's why we need community. That's why we need people to just say, hey, I know everything looks chaotic. I know there's a lot of negative stuff to dwell on. I know there's a lot of positive stuff to dwell on. Right? There's a ditch on both sides of the roads here. It's not just negativity or bad news that can draw you away from your faith and the hope that you have in Christ. It's also a lot of blessings. All of a sudden, you got a lot of money and you start thinking, I, 
I seem to be doing pretty good by myself, right? <laughs> it seems like I can take care of myself and I don't need to pray. I don't need to feel reliant on God. So there's a ditch on both sides of the road here. But what we want to do as a church, as gathered believers, as a community, point each other to the one that stands forever. That's what communion is about too. And communion is an interesting thing because we sing about the gospel. You know, we sing about Jesus Christ and his death on our behalf. The, the grace that's offered there and, and our hope for standing before the judgment seat of, of God and saying, no, it's not my works that's going to save me. It's not, I'm ne I've never earned heaven, but Christ has died for me. We're reminded of what Christ did to pay our debt. But it's also the promises that he gave to his disciples. I will not taste the fruit of the vine until I am with you again. So it's also a future promise. We look back at what he's done and we look towards the future of his promise that we will be with him again when we taste the fruit of the vine together. And so we have to remember that God is fully capable of making his plans come to pass throughout human history. Maybe you find yourself we will all find ourselves in chaotic situations sometimes. I love to think about the cross. Just think about the cross. How, how crazy it is that we use it as decorations. It's a torturing device. It's a torturing device perfected by the Romans to kill, humiliate, destroy someone. And yet for us Christians, we sing songs about the cross. And we proudly have them, you know, around our necks or, uh, or in our churches. This old torturing device. Because God took something that was horrific, horrible, chaos, and he turned it into something that causes us to remember the gift of God. So when you find yourself in a situation that just seems overwhelming, remember the cross. That's what he did with that thing. He can do whatever he wants to in your circumstances too. He can twist it around. He can make sure that whatever you go through right now, it works together for your good because you're called by his name and known by him. So let's remember the cross. Let's pray that we be a people um, that are not obsessed with uh, the fear of missing out, you know, not obsessed with knowing all the latest things because we know the oldest news in the book. God is in control. No matter what the newest news is, he is still there. He knows what he's doing. His plans will come to pass. And let's gaze upon him. So let's, let's pray as uh, the music team is welcome to come up here.